Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, what I'm about to share at the start uh, may be uh, distressing for some to hear. Uh, I have uh, left out uh, details so that it's uh, at least PG rated, so be prepared. On the afternoon of the 13th of October, 2011, a little two-year-old girl, nicknamed Little Yue, was hit by a van in a narrow, busy market in China. She had wandered away from her house while her mom was busy bringing the washing in during a thunderstorm. The driver of the van paused, but did not get out. Instead, he drove off. As she lay bleeding on the road for more than seven minutes, a closed-circuit footage captured at least 18 people who walked past Yue Yue during this time. Some paused to stare at her, but none of them helped her. There were others who actually went out of their way to avoid her. Before long, she was run over by another truck that did not stop either. Eventually, a rubbish scavenger helped her. In the video, you can make out that Yue is crying, she's holding her head, moving her arms and legs. Tragically, she succumbed to her injuries and died eight days later. The footage of the incident, which was broadcast by a local TV station and uploaded on the internet, stirred widespread condemnation in China and around the world. One of the, pass- uh, one of the passers-by leaders said, this wasn't my child, why should I bother? This wasn't my child, why should I bother? Bother. A journalist by the name of Li Jiazhang shouted at her own people, shame on us, Chinese. Many com- commentators believe that this incident to be indicative of the moral decline in the contemporary Chinese society. However, other commentators argued that the reluctance to help was connected to a high-profile case five years earlier in which a good Samaritan who helped an injured victim was accused of being the perpetrator and was subsequently forced to pay for the victim's medical bill. This, they said, made made people fearful of going near little Yue. Not surprisingly, a a lot of people, a majority of people were not convinced that it explained, that that explained the shocking callousness and indifference displayed by the 18 individuals who ignored little Yue Yue. It is too easy for us to sit in judgment of the 18 individuals who ignored, who never, uh, who, who ignored little Yehwe and say, I would never do anything like that. Maybe not, maybe not, most certainly not, I, I would imagine. But consider other scenarios, those who are not like little Yehwe, but they're hurting in other ways, their need of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's kindness, nonetheless. What have you done? What have your responses been? What excuses have you made or reasons you've given for why you can't help or won't help? We say to God, here I am, send me, use me, 
But very often he's sending us to people right in front of us. As a Christian author by the name of Kathy Golker writes, sometimes taking up our cross or being a servant is doing the thing in front of us, not the glamorous, high-risk thing afar off. That is our consideration this morning as we look at the passage from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. The passage begins with Mark reminding us again that Jesus is on the road with his disciples leading the way. For the first time, Mark identifies Jerusalem as his destination via Jericho, the city of his destiny, the symbol of opposition to Jesus. It was typical for rabbis to walk ahead of their disciples. So Mark is much more in mind with his statement, Jesus leading the way, which is unique to Mark's account. Mark is wanting us to see that Jesus is being single-minded in his march to the cross where suffering and death await, await him as the servant of the Lord. Mark tells us the disciples are lagging behind. It could be the 12 or more. And they're astonished. Not only are they lagging behind, but they're astonished and afraid. He doesn't tell us why this is so, but one thing is certain. Jesus doesn't allay their fear, but predicts for the third time his suffering and death. But this prediction is distinct from his two earlier predictions in Mark chapter 8, 31 and 9, 31. This one is more detailed, and it includes information, new information, such as that he will be betrayed and condemned to death by the chief priest and the teachers of the law who will hand him over to the Gentiles, that is, the Romans. They will mock, they will spit, they will flog, and they will kill him. But Jesus, in all three predictions, mentions his resurrection three days after his death. Sadly, Jesus' words go over the disciples' head, just like the previous two passion predictions. We know this because of what follows. In complete contrast to Jesus' humility and willingness to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, James and John come sidling up to him with an audacious request. A request that give us, gives us the first explicit indication of the kind of messianic expectation that they and the others had. They're expecting Jesus, once he gets into Jerusalem, to defeat the Romans and then establish his kingdom. So why not stake a claim for yourselves before this happens? First in, best dressed, right? And their, dis, and their audacious request is bold but simple, that each one of them sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus. In Jewish thought, the right and left hand of the king was the place of greatest and second in prominence, respectively. Audacious, isn't it? Jesus does not rebuke them, but graciously tells them that they have no idea what they're asking. He asks in verse 38, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? The cup represents the suffering that Jesus will undergo. And baptism here is a metaphor for being immersed 
in calamity. Jesus' ordeal will be like a downpour, not a drizzle. In other words, Jesus asks of them if they're willing to share his fate and douse with the waters of hardship and trial. James and John answer glibly, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Jesus' question is actually meant to be rhetorical because despite their claim, the disciples cannot drink the cup and undergo the fate that only Jesus must undergo as the lamb that takes away the sins of the world on the cross. Nonetheless, using the same imagery of cup and baptism, Jesus does indicate to them that as his disciples, they will experience their share of sufferings and persecutions, something he predicts in Mark chapter 13, verse 9. However, the question of the position in the kingdom of God is a matter for God alone to decide, Jesus said. What Jesus meant by that is unclear, but this much is, as Edwards writes, disciples of Jesus do not, do not decide to accept or reject hardships on the basis of the future rewards accruing from them. They accept suffering on the sole basis that it is the way of Jesus. Now, when the other disciples find out what James and John had done, they are furious, as you can imagine. Not because they're offended for Jesus, because they harbored the same ambitions. Rather, it's because James and John had beaten them to the punch. And this is so reminiscent, is it not, of the argument that the disciples had earlier amongst themselves, if you remember, about who was the greatest back in, chapter, back in Mark chapter 9. One can only imagine how disappointed, how frustrated Jesus might have been as he summons them to explain again the values of the kingdom of God. Verses 42 to 45 Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a nutshell, the world's pathway to, uh, to greatness is prestige, is power, is dominance, is position. Not so with you, Jesus says emphatically. The essence of discipleship, the essence of Christian leadership is humility and service. This is what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. The followers of Jesus are to be servants, or diakonoi, which is in the Greek, which in the Greek means someone who waited on tables. The followers of Jesus are to be a slave, or in the Greek, doulos, which is even lower than a servant in status, and it means one totally owned by another and possessing no rights except those given by his or a master. 
when we adopt the virtues of humility and service, we're taking after none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the most humble and the greatest servant of all. Edwards is spot on, arguing that at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. The ideas that Jesus presents regarding rule, regarding leadership and service are combined in a way that finds no obvious precedent, neither the Old Testament or Jewish tradition. Now, Jesus, before leaving for Jerusalem, heals a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That's what the word bar means. And Bartimaeus means son of honor. But as we will see shortly, he's treated very dishonorably by the crowd. This is Jesus' final healing in the Gospel of Mark. While this story is also told in Mark and Luke, it is only in Mark that the name of the person is cited, which has led some to think that perhaps Bartimaeus became a Christian and was known by churches in Palestine. The story also concludes the segment of Mark from uh, chapter 8, verses 27 to 10, verse 32. And do you know what's interesting? The story, this, this, this segment here also begins with another story of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida. So here we have two stories of Jesus healing a blind person, acting like bookends that hold the material in which Jesus has been teaching about his coming sufferings, death, and resurrection, and the nature of discipleship. Something that the disciples are not able to see and grasp until the Lord open their eyes. You see, we're all blind like Bartimaeus until Jesus gives us sight. The healing of Bartimaeus is set in Jericho, around 33 kilometers by road, northeast of Jerusalem. It is the city at which Galilean Jews on pilgrimage to Jerusalem crossed the Jordan River in Judea before taking their journey, journey's final leg up the steep road to Jerusalem. The blind man begs by the roadside day after day simply to survive through the generosity of pilgrims. In the ancient world, the blind man is completely expendable, and that is how the crowd treats him. They neither see him nor hear him. But somehow, this blind man hears that Jesus is passing by. He yells out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Most uh, Jews associate the title Son of David in reference to the Messiah with nationalistic and militaristic, mil militaristic visions. So perception, perception of Jesus, obviously not yet informed by the cross and the resurrection, whose messianic work of establishing a kingdom of righteousness is not done by rounding up recruits for revolution, but by giving his life as a ransom. Instead of offering to take Bartimaeus to Jesus for healing like the crowd of Bethsaida did, the crowd at Jericho tries to silence him. As far as they're concerned, Bartimaeus does not matter. He's being a pest for yelling out to Jesus. 
Ignoring the crowd, Bartimaeus persists in shouting out louder. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, right? His heart and his mind must be racing as he wrestles with the cost of laying his life down for our sins. Think of his prayers at Gethsemane. He's got way more important things on his mind. And given that he has already given sight to so many people already, he'd be completely justified in walking past Bartimaeus on the side of the road, right? We'll give him a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's about time you think for yourself, Jesus. It's about time you think of yourself, Jesus. What is this blind man? He's just blind. He's a pest. But Jesus stops. Jesus stops, and he calls Bartimaeus to himself. He wants to meet Bartimaeus at his point of need. Isn't that what we love about Jesus? He's never too busy. He's never too important for anyone because every person matters to him. Every person is valuable to him. No matter what side of life they're from, no matter their creed, their color, their, their nationality. Every person matters and is valuable to him. This notion, by the way, is far from normative in the ancient world. Rebecca McLaughlin elaborates. In Greek and Roman thought, free men had more inherent dignity and worth than women, slaves, or children. And disabled infants were routinely disposed of. Plato and Aristotle supported direct eugenics. The letter, with the letter declaring, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Into this world stepped a first century Jewish rabbi who elevated women, who valued children, loved the poor, and embraced the sick. The early Christians' insistence on brotherhood across racial and ethnic boundaries, even across the dichotomy of slave and free, became a spark to ignite a new moral imagination. Values that many of us in the West today, con uh, many values that many of us in, in, in the West today consider to be universal and independent of religious thought, turn out not to have sprung from the ground during the Enlightenment, but to have grown from the gradual spread and influence of Christian beliefs. The composition and widespread adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was one accomplished with theological foundation. I didn't know this. Eleanor Roosevelt, who chaired the committee, was a devout Christian, strongly motivated by her faith. Charles Malik, a, a key framer of the Declaration, was a Greek Orthodox theologian. Back to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. The crowd calls out to the blind man, saying, Cheer up! On your feet! Jesus is calling you! Notice how the crowd changes its tune so quickly. Bartimaeus jumps up to his feet and goes to Jesus, and Jesus asks him a very odd question. 
what do you want me to do for you? To which I'm tempted to say, Lord, are you blind? Isn't it obvious what he would like done for him? But in the context of Mark, it makes perfect sense when you consider Jesus asked the very same question of James and John earlier. What do you want? And what do they want? Extraordinary glory. And here in stark contrast, Bartimaeus in humble trust replies, Rabuni, I just want to see. That's all. I want normal health. Not extraordinary glory. And Rabuni is a strengthened form for rabbi. Appearing elsewhere only in John chapter 20, verse 16, it means my Lord, my master, or my teacher. The choice of address is very significant given that this section of Mark, remember, focuses on Jesus' teaching on discipleship. But Edwards adds, quote, the most practical response would be for Jesus to heal him and be on his way. But for Jesus, Bartimaeus is not a problem to be dealt with. Jesus will not do something to him, but something with him by asking him a question, thus allowing him to express himself as a person rather than apologizing for, him, uh, for himself as a social problem or victim. Jesus, without fuss, says to him, go. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, Bartimaeus receives his sight and follows Jesus along the road. Jesus' reference to Bartimaeus' faith doesn't mean that he has earned anything. Aiken says it well. Grace is the divine hand that extends healing. Faith is the human hand that reaches out and receives it. And the object of our faith is crucial. Bartimaeus did not have empty faith. No, Bartimaeus directed his faith to the only one who could heal, to the only one who could save. The word heal also means saved. And Mark probably meant both because once he receives his sight, he doesn't do his own thing. He doesn't live life. He doesn't go out and venture into doing things he had never, that he had wished he had been able to do but couldn't do because he was blind. He wasn't like the lepers who did not express gratitude. More than expressing gratitude, Bartimaeus chooses and embraces discipleship. Like the 12 that Jesus called, he abandons his former way of life he leaves everything, including his cloak, his sole worldly possession, and begins to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus along the road. The phrase is a technical term for discipleship. Edwards writes, Jesus has transformed Bartimaeus from a beggar beside the road to a disciple on the road. Faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Whoever asks of Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus even on the uphill road to the cross. Praise God that Jesus stopped for Bartimaeus. Praise God that Jesus had time for Bartimaeus. 
And because he did, Bartimaeus' life was changed and transformed for eternity. God's work was right in front of him. What about us? Have we become so preoccupied with ourselves, so busy and so self-centered to notice, never mind help our neighbors whom Jesus calls us to love? David Benner is absolutely right when he wrote, a Christian spirituality moves us into the world. Spirituality that is oblivious to the suffering and injustice of the world is not Christian spirituality. The Christian life is not just self-directed, but other-directed. It is about introspection and outrospection. It is about receiving and giving. It is about being loved and loved. Furthermore, there is something inherently redemptive, inherently powerful, inherently healthy when we look outwards, when we look outside of ourselves, our needs, our wants, and our desires. It is a story that tells of a monarch long ago who had twin sons. There was some confusion about which one was born first. As they grew to young manhood, the king sought a fair way to designate one of them as crown prince. Calling them to the council chamber one day, he said, My sons, the day will come when one of you must succeed me as a king. The burdens of sovereignty are very, very heavy. To find out which of you is better able to bear them cheerfully, I am sending you together to, a far, to the far corners of the kingdom. One of my advisors will place equal burdens on your shoulders. My crown will one day go to the one who returns first, bearing his burden like a king should. In a spirit of friendly competition, the brothers set out together. Soon they overtook a frail and aged woman struggling under a heavy weight. One of the boys suggested that they stop to help her. The other protested, we have a burden of our own to carry about. We have a burden of our own to worry about. Let us be on our way. So the second son hurried on while the other stayed behind to help the woman with her load. On his journey to the kingdom's edge, the same young man found others who needed help, a sightless man who needed assistance, who needed assistance to go home, a lost child whom he carried back to her worried parents, a farmer whose wagon needed a strong shoulder to push it out of the mud. Eventually, he did reach his father's advisor, where he secured his own burden and started home with it safely on his shoulders. When he arrived back at the palace, his brother met him at the gate and greeted him with dismay. I don't understand, the brother said. I told father the burden was too heavy to carry. How did you manage it alone? The future king replied thoughtfully. I suppose when I help others carry their burdens, I found the strength to carry my own. It's quite profound, isn't it? 
I suppose when I helped others carry their burdens, I found the strength to carry my own. There are little Uyghurs around us in our lives who need our help and love, who need to experience the kindness, the mercy, and the grace of God through us. As servants of the Most High God, let us ensure that we're never too busy, too preoccupied with ourselves, with our needs, with our wants to help, to stop and help. That was not the way of Jesus, and that is not the way and can never be the way of his disciples. For our Lord said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To conclude, here's Kathy Golka's quote again. Sometimes taking up our cross is doing the thing in front of us. Sometimes taking up our cross to follow Jesus is doing the thing right in front of us. Not the glamorous, high-risk thing afar off. So our application this week is a simple prayer. Lord, show me the little Uyghurs in my life. Show me who they are and show me how to be there for them. Show me how to serve the little Uyghurs in my life. Amen. Let's pray. And that is our prayer, Lord. A simple but a loaded prayer. Because stopping to help little Uyghurs in our life will inevitably cost us. It will cost us time. It will cost us in some way emotional energy mental energy, physical energy. When we come across little Uyghurs in our life, theoretically, it should be an easy thing to do, to stop and help. But in real life, it is not always easy. And I pray that when we do not find it easy to lay aside ourselves, to lay aside whatever it is that is preoccupying us at that moment, Lord, help us tap into your grace. Help us remember you, the greatest servant of all, who lays life down. And you came not to be served, but to lay your life down the ransom of many, that we will remember that, be inspired by that, and draw strength from that, to stop and serve the little Uyghurs in our life. I ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. 
please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.